0: In this bonus edition of the podcast, we'll get the opportunity to talk with the original classic lineup bass player for LA Guns, Kelly Nichols. Sometimes when you have one version of the band, well, it's just never enough. So welcome to the Grown Up Rock Podcast. Now, crank it up. Controversy is nothing new for rock bands in a time where owning a brand name is just about as important as owning the rights to the music, if not even more important. Yes, I said brand name, not band name, because a band name is a brand these days. There are two versions of L.A. Guns, one that features the namesake of the band Tracy Guns and classic lineup lead singer Phil Lewis. And one that features classic lineup drummer Steve Riley, who, by the way, is the only guy in the band who has never actually quit the band. And classic lineup bassist Kelly Nichols, who we talked to in this episode. Obviously, both bands have the same name, a similar logo, and play those L.A. Guns songs from the past albums we all know and love. All the guys in both bands enjoy creating and playing music, obviously, so why shouldn't they both be able to do that? Now, I know everyone is screaming right now. They can, just not both under the title L.A. Guns. I get it. It can be confusing. At least with Great White, you have Jack Russell's Great White. Jeff Tate just had to simply stop using the name Right. You know what hit me? Is how come we don't see... This happening with bands from the 80s like Culture Club or The Police. Why is it only hard rock bands that seem to have these double versions of bands going on? Kind of interesting, I thought. I'm the first person to yell at the top of my lungs that the singer and usually the lead guitar player are the identity of the band. The simple reason is this. The singer is the voice of the band. It's who you hear speaking to you through words and melody. In many cases, the guitar player is the one writing the songs. He's the true musician in the band. He's the one that comes up with the riffs. I understand this is not in every band, but I will go out on a limb and say that I bet with most rock and roll bands, this probably falls under that description. The bottom line is that both versions of the band own a piece of the band name, which means they both get to use the name. End of story. If either band went out under a different name, they would not be paid the same or bring in the same amount of people and that is just a fact. So the end result for now is that you get two LA Guns, the Steve Riley Kelly Nichols version and the Phil Lewis Tracy Guns version. Before you scream for one version or another, I would say this. One, go watch the footage of the Steve Riley Kelly Nichols version at M3 Festival last year. They were pretty damn good. Two, listen to the latest single, Crawl, from this version of the L.A. Guns. And three, guess what? You don't have to choose between the two. You get two albums this year of new material. You can go see both versions of the band live once we get back to being able to go see live rock and roll. And to me, it's win a winner if you're an L.A. Guns fan. You don't have to choose sides, trust me. I was a fan of the last two Phil Lewis and Tracy Guns version LA Guns albums. Both albums, to me, had some great material on them. Both LA Guns versions have recently released singles for their upcoming albums. I have to admit, I much prefer the single Crawl from the Steve Riley Kelly Nichols version to the new single the other LA Guns released. Just my personal opinion. Steve Riley, Kelly Nichols, LA Guns version currently consists of Kelly Nichols on bass, Steve Riley on drums, Scotty Griffin on lead guitar, and Kurt Froelich on lead vocals and rhythm guitar. In this conversation I have with bass player Kelly Nichols, I don't talk to him a ton about the other LA Guns simply because everyone has probably already asked him and it's dumb to keep rehashing it. However, I do ask him one question, which leads to some discussion that I found pretty interesting. We get into a lot of his history growing up in New York and his time on the Sunset Strip, along with the new L.A. Guns album, Renegades, and the new material written for the record. So hopefully you'll enjoy this conversation I have with Kelly Nichols, and we'll catch you guys next week. See ya!
1: Hi everybody, it's Kelly Nichols from LA Guns and you're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with Stephen Michaels.
0: So tell me, you grew up in the New York area, correct?
1: Yeah, I grew up mostly on uh, Long Island, Queens, Long Island, Harlem.
0: Yeah. So, what kind of stuff were you into growing up as a kid? What kind of bands and music were you listening to back then?
1: Man, I was really not into music too much. I was I'm into motorcycles, and so I uh, I was racing motorcycles. I like lived and breathed motorcycles and everything at the time, and so that was in Georgia. And when I moved to New York, probably right back about 16, my motorcycles got stolen within a week. And my, uh, my dad's station wagon with our trailer was stolen. So it was all gone, like within a week of moving to <laughs> New York. So, uh, I had to do something else cause I couldn't afford to, uh, get back into that, you know? So my brother played guitar and we had a friend who, uh, played drums and had a basement. And so, uh, I got a uh, Kiss record. I got an Aerosmith record. I think I got a Sabbath record for Christmas one year. And, you know, that was it. I just started uh, playing, went and bought a bass. My dad bought me like a little $100 vendor bass and started practicing and um, just kind of started from there.
0: Well, you mentioned three albums that you got right off the bat. And those are three pretty good bands to start with for sure.
1: Yeah. Really lucky
0: yeah <laughs> so did you just fall into that type of music were you influenced by friends or uh family members that were listening to that kind of stuff at the time
1: no it was i remember the lady it was it was the wife of my dad's friend and she gave me these records for uh i had long hair at the time anyway i always had long hair my brother and i my mom never made us cut it so we already had long hair and stuff and and i don't know she just gave me these three records for christmas and um uh, You know, I saw like Steven Tyler and Joe Perry and I was like, wow, interesting, (laughs) you know, and then I started learning more about the world of, you know, rock and roll and touring and all that stuff. And I really wanted to see the world when I was a kid. I was always like my biggest thing to do was to somehow, how do I see the world? You know, before I'm too old, while I'm young, I want to travel. I want to see the world. But how do I afford it? How do I do it? You know, and then I started uh, realizing that, you know, you could do it with a band and you could travel and you could play music and it was just a winning combination. So the more I learned about it, the more I kind of just kept going into it.
0: That's cool. So how, at what point and how do you end up on the West Coast from New York?
1: Well, went out to the West Coast in 1984 with my uh, best friend, Mike Pont. we, uh, Took a two week uh, vacation. We had two. We had a round trip ticket and two hundred bucks for two weeks, and we were gonna sleep in the car. And we were just like, whatever, man. We were like early twenties, and we did. We slept in the car, but we met some cool people. They let us crash on their couches, and we just wanted to, uh, you know, give it a shot, see what it was like. So, uh, you yeah, know, really enjoyed it. and The scene was really good. So, came back to New York, and then waited uh, a couple of years to uh finish whatever business i had here you know take care of my loose ends and family and stuff and then i moved there in 86 so i just felt like it was the place to be you know um there was some good stuff coming out you know van halen and all this stuff coming out of there and i was like and then you know Baywatch, and it's like sunny and it's like you know (laughs) i'm up you know i'm up to my ass in snow out here and i'm like i wasn't into it at the time you know i don't mind snow now i love it actually but when you're young, you know, you want to be out in the sunshine having fun. So that's was like, gotta we got to go to L.A. So
0: It was a good call for you because, I mean, you actually had a couple of bands while you were in New York, right? That yeah. band Virgin Steel was in New York, correct?
1: Yeah, Virgin Steel was in New York and the Angels in Vain yeah. was in New York. Uh, Sweet Pain, we did a record. But, you know, it just didn't feel the same, man. It just uh, it just wasn't feeling the same. I felt like I had to go out and try that and really give it a shot and see what that's about, you know.
0: Yeah. So you get out to the West Coast and you end up in uh, Los Angeles there and you're making your way, making friends. I'm sure uh, what a lot of people may or may not know about your career is that you started out, you were in Faster Pussycat when they got their first record deal but you never made it to the recording of the first album because you had this major motorcycle accident which really sidelined you for quite some time when that happened was there any discussion on waiting on you finding out what's going to go on what how did it come to pass that they were just going to need to move on without you at that point
1: well, the accident happened the night we got the record deal. So, um, I, yeah, I finally get a record deal. I'm as happy as can be. You know, I'm like, wow, I can relax for a couple of years. I'll be able to eat and I, I'll be able to like relax and not have to, you know, keep waiting. Once you get the record deal, it's like it takes such a lift off your shoulders, right? So, I'm so happy. I had one beer and we decided we were at our manager's house, Vicki Hamilton's house, and we decided to uh, go and jam a little bit. We were, you know, we we're in a good mood. So the studio was like a couple of miles away and I I got on my bike and the guy made a left turn in front of me at an intersection and I hit his bumper and it was obvious that I was not going to be in any shape to record anytime soon. Yeah, Tammy was there. He was covered in blood. He had his hand on my leg. It was a wild scene and... So they all came to visit me at the hospital and told me, you know, they have to move on and the record company wants them to you know, start the record. Timing is everything. So I totally understood. I was in traction. I had 10 operations to go and uh, I was there for almost three months and there's no way they could wait for me. And then the, the bass player, Eric Stacey, who took my spot, you know, he came to the hospital by himself to say hi and introduce himself. So that was always really sweet, you know, so. It was unfortunate, man. And so I had to sit there like, you know, like, why? Why did this happen? Like, the night I get a record deal, this is unbelievable. I've been trying to get a record deal forever, for years, you know? And I I get one and I hit a car? Like, fudge, man, you know?
0: Yeah, I'll tell you what, to a, a lot of people, a lot of musicians that have struggled for a long time to get a record deal, to actually go through something like that. I'll tell you what, that kind of thing would really, really wreck a lot of people. But you you continued. I mean, you recovered. It took you a while to recover, and you moved on. So you're in this band. You get signed to a major label. You have this accident. You're out of the picture. And then here comes another band, which already has a record deal, and you end up getting the gig. Were you thinking at that point in time, damn, I'm the luckiest bass player ever?
1: Well, yeah, pretty much. And I still feel that way anyway. But, you know, that's why uh, I got a soft spot for Tracy, because um, when I got out of the hospital, I flew home. It was like the day before Christmas or Christmas Day. I got home and I was out with my friend again and I got home and my mom said this guy named Tracy called from L.A. And I was like, you know, I knew Tracy at that point already. So I figured I immediately knew I was going to be in the band. So uh, I called him up and he said... Um, you know, yeah, Mick was playing bass, but the guitar player quit, so Mick went to guitar and then now they need a bass player and asked me if I'd be interested. And I said, Dude, I got a cast up to my ass. And he said, You'll heal. I was like, Okay, dude. I got on the next plane out to uh, and flew back to LA and started rehearsals with, you know, crutches and casts and we played the whiskey. I had to be carried up and down the stairs by the bodyguards and the bouncers, whatever. It was you know, I had to sit on a stool. We did the Rick D show. I had to sit on the stool. I refractured it twice throughout the years. I did six years of cane and crutches. It was a drag to have to go through the whole thing, but I was happy to be there and, you know, I'm still grateful for the opportunity to get to play, but it was tough. You know, It was tough. There were times where I was going on stage where I could like feel my leg was like not totally healed. Like it could snap and it was scary. So, you know, There's a lot that happens when you hurt yourself that bad. They really should have cut it off. (laughs) Wow. Made made me a pirate.
0: And you're still riding motorcycles today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just went to Sturgis a few years ago.
0: I saw, I watched that video. Pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) Uh, that was a great experience. Yeah. it never deterred me from uh, riding motorcycles. I'm a big MotoGP fan. I watch that every, every race. And, uh, Yeah. It's just like, that was always in my blood. So, but I wanted to see the world. So we got into music. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, anybody that knows anything about the sunset strip back in those days, I mean, it was a bit of a, uh, round table, musical chair, round table, everybody played in everybody's band at one point or another. It seems like, uh, you had this relationship, uh, at some point that you had built with Tracy and, he remembered you and that's why you ended up in LA Guns after the musical chairs of Mick Cripps moving over to guitar and that's interesting because Mick was playing bass and he moved over to guitar and that's not unlike, you know, LA Guns that you're in now where the bass player went over to guitar in your band, right? So that you could play bass. So it says something about the musicianship back in those days. I mean, people could uh, handle their instruments. And that was one of the things I always dug about that era of music is that people were real players back then, you know?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. And there's a lot of good songs that came out of that, and there was a lot of you know dedicated players, you know kids were doing something they weren't just sitting on the phone, you know we didn't have phones, <laughs> yeah, we didn't have laptops, but I was gonna say the reason Tracy and I got along so well is because we didn't do hard drugs, so we would hang we could and we could hang out together, and it was fine, you know, so but yeah, we built that relationship and just kept it going. That's great. Uh,
0: Back in those days, was the environment on the Sunset Strip uh, friendly or was there more of a competition type thing?
1: No, I would say it was uh, I'd say it was friendly, but there was definitely an air of competition. You know, there was a lot of bands and everybody was vying for the attention, you know. So I remember seeing Brett Michaels, you know, handing out flyers when Poison was just starting. He was out there every show handing out flyers and, you know, hustling and everybody had to. uh, you know, use whatever tools you had to uh, get people to your shows and 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 get the attention. There was a lot of fans fighting for that attention, but a lot of good stuff came out of it.
0: Yeah, can you uh, share any fun stories or memories from those days back on the strip?
1: Oh my god, it was just like you know an endless party. Like when the Rainbow would close at two o'clock in the morning at you know the the Sunset Boulevard, it was just like tons of people on the streets and everywhere and cars and. Motorcycles and girls, and then we'd find you know find a party to go to after up in the hills, and just party out there all night, and uh, you know figure out you know schedules and, and rehearsals and, and try to be in shape for rehearsals, you know. Wow. But it's, it was just so much. It was, you know, it was a good time. It was not a very political time. No terrorism, really. No, uh, you know, no virus, and everybody was out and enjoying life, and the, the music was, you know, not politically motivated i think or you know super serious in any way it was it was all just fun and upbeat so it was uh it was a great time to be there in la for that so
0: yeah when music was fun for sure yeah (laughs) when la guns was having success around the time of uh cocked and loaded did you have any time to enjoy any of the success that was coming your way
1: well you know every night You know, you do the same thing every night, but you just do it in a different town with a whole, like, clean slate with a fresh group of people and interesting stories and different new scenarios and things to get through. Where's the dressing room? Where's the hotel? Every night. So it was just always interesting.
0: Yeah. In between tours and album recording cycles, were you able to reap the rewards of your success at all? Was there any... Time to enjoy that, though.
1: I don't know. You know, there was. You know, it there, there was. Uh, the schedule was full, man. You know, you had to keep going. So it's like as soon as you came off tour, you maybe had a week or two break, and then we'd go into the studio for three months and start working on new songs, and then you go to the studio for another two months. And then you go right on back on tour. So, you know, that cycle kept repeating itself. And that's that was pretty much the life. I mean, I didn't take a trip to Paris or anything or London and go hang out for you know a few weeks and on the Riviera. <laughs> but it was kind of like you just had to uh, you had to ride the wave. And it was a 24 hour job. It's a 24 hour job. <laughs> yeah,
0: I got it. I understand for sure. Uh, so let me ask you this. And this is the only question that I'm going to ask you regarding Tracy and Phil. Did Tracy and Phil, when they reunited, ever approach you about rejoining the band? No. No, not at all.
1: No. And uh, I actually asked Phil, and he made it clear uh, it was a no. Oh, wow.
0: Okay. So you you were interested, but they weren't having it. And as far as I know, I mean, you had no issues with Phil or Tracy uh, at the time of your departure, did you?
1: Never had issues with Phil or Tracy till I started playing with, uh, you know, Steve.
0: Which came after the fact though, correct?
1: Yeah, that was, uh, but that was kind of quick. Uh, you know, Phil asked me to work on a song with him one day and I felt that the song wasn't really a song yet. And I said, how about, you know, we just kind of right write one together, start scratch, you know? And, uh, he wasn't down for that. And then I asked, well, you know, what about, you know, coming back and, uh, and play it and you know he wasn't down for that either so you know when steve got asked by the the managers of m3 to uh put a version of the band together i mean steve had no intention of putting a version of la guns together they asked him for three years in a row to put a version of the band together to come play this festival and then finally you know he called me and then uh we put it together and got scott and kurt and just going to be a one-off show Yep. see what happens you know and we got a record deal with golden robot records from it and now we have a whole album ready to go so that's it's all kind of starts from that you know
0: yeah and let's talk about that so you got new material what is the band's writing process
1: well we all live in uh, different states yep. so that's the first issue so we don't get to get get together and jam uh you don't have plenty of time to get together and jam at someone's house or studio or something so When we got the record deal with uh, Golden Robot, they wanted the record pretty quickly. So we we had to talk about it. And just because we get a record deal, you know, yeah, it's great to get a record deal, but you don't want to just, you know, rush it and put out a crappy record. So you got to stake like, you know, can we really do this? So everybody wrote some new songs and a couple of guys had songs that they had written already that they thought would fit in good with what we had going. Uh, I wrote three. And we picked the best ten out of all of them and, you know, sent tapes back and forth through the Internet and getting current familiar with the melody lines and everybody on the same page and a lot of homework and just, you know, guerrilla warfare to make sure that we got to the studio. We had two days of rehearsals and then seven days to record. So that was it. That's the budget. That's what we had. So everybody had to really do their homework and learn these songs And, you know, we still added stuff live while we were in the studio. We still added bits and pieces. Uh, Yeah, it would have been nice to have more time, but that's the way it is. So we just kind of uh, really put our heads down, and good communication and good attitudes got us through it.
0: Yeah, so the first single, Crawl...
1: cat in a rock and roll band i took hold with the jump black
0: great tune first of all thanks very much sounds like old school la guns to me i think so thanks yeah it has a great vibe what is the rest of the material like is it in that same vein is it different i mean how do you how do you guys feel about the rest of the material
1: I feel like it all is. Uh, I feel like it all is where it should be. It flows good. It has a lot of energy. There, there's two slow songs, but there's eight rockers on there, so you got plenty of rocking. There's all kinds of different twists and stuff and things that you probably don't expect. So, you know, I think that I'm really happy with the way it came out. I was really happy with the process of it and getting together with these guys and working and doing something and. Crawl's the first song I've written in twenty-five years. So I feel like I'm, you know, really blessed and to have a song released into the universe is a great feeling. So we're just really stoked and you know looking forward to the positive future.
0: Now, did you guys produce this record yourselves or did you have somebody in on it?
1: Steve produced it and we had one engineer who was amazing, this guy named June. He was spot on the whole time. So we were really able to like dissect stuff really quickly didn't have to look for stuff uh, really made it the guy really knew his business and it made it really a lot easier to get through it in that uh, short amount of time but uh you know we all chipped in man we all really chipped in and everybody was like completely open to ideas and stuff so it was just like a great experience
0: so the name of the new record is Renegades. yeah who came up with the name
1: (laughs) well i saw i have I love Pop-Tarts, right? So I bought a box of Pop-Tarts and I put them in my cupboard. And one day I'm looking at it and and it says on the side of the box, it says there's a word for people who eat Pop-Tarts untoasted. And that word is renegades. So I kind of just, you know, I eat Pop-Tarts untoasted. So I went to the rest of the band, you know, with renegades. Everybody liked it. It seemed to fit the attitude of what we're kind of doing right now. We're the underdog. You know, we're just trying to put out some good music and there's a song called renegades on the record so get to hear that someday
0: who in god's name would eat a pop-tart untoasted (laughs) this guy (laughs) (laughs) i mean pop-tarts untoasted are just like you gotta toast them and you even throw a little butter (laughs) on there man
1: oh man that's too fancy (laughs) that's crazy talk (laughs) i guess i am a true renegade then
0: (laughs) there you go so when are you guys shooting to release this record what's the do you have a release date on it yet
1: we don't have a release date we have we have a plan and uh the plan is to probably release another single first and then then the record and also try to do a video for this new song that we want to release so, we're trying to figure out the uh, logistics of getting that together because uh, everybody lives in a different states. So, we got to figure out how to do this. And we have an idea and everything. So, we're going to see if we can pull that off. But yeah, you know, the record would be coming out soon if it wasn't for this pandemic. But we're going to release another song. And then, hopefully, by the summertime, you know, close to summertime, it's ready to go. Yeah, perfect. Uh, I mean, it's all done, ready to go. The artwork's done. It's just sitting in the vault, ready to go, man. It's fermenting.
0: Awesome. <laughs> All right, Kelly. Well, I appreciate your time. Is there anything that you want to mention before we let you go?
1: Yeah, thanks, Stephen, for having me. I totally appreciate it, man. And I would just say uh, that uh, people could check out uh, the website, laguns.net, and uh, everything is updated there first. So if you want to keep tabs on what's going on and when things come in, uh, that's where you can go.
0: Yep. You can also go to Montal Salvage Company and pick up some uh, shirts from, uh, from our friend Kelly here, right?
1: Yeah, Montauk Salvage Company, yeah.
0: (laughs) We will put all the links to the website and all that stuff in our show notes. Kelly Nichols, we appreciate your time.
1: Steven, thank you so much, man. Keep it going. I appreciate what you do too, man. Thank you. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock.